Welcome to Let's Schmooze. I'm Doug Ebach, the original screenwriter for the movie Sweet Home Alabama. Each month, I bring on guests to discuss topics related to writing for various entertainment media. And our topic today is going to be various entertainment media. Today, my guests are Ann Toole, a television, video game, and comic book writer, and Scott Marcano, who has written movies, web series, and comic books. So welcome, guys. And thanks for being here. Thanks for having us, Doug. Yeah. Um, so I want to start with kind of like the, the basic question all these start with, which is sort of like, how did you break into the business? And uh, I'll ask Anne the question first for coordination. Uh, well, I like to use a credit card and <laughs> uh, that's usually how I break it. No. Um, <laughs> uh, so it's always like the, the boring, the boring uh, answer. I was a writer's assistant and um, uh, then I got my first uh, freelance scripts that way. And, this is uh, you were a TV writer initially, yeah, right? Yeah, I started out in, in TV, yeah. And then um, for video games, uh, it's even a less helpful answer because uh, they were looking for people with produced TV credits, so, which I had at that time. So it, definitely people will ask me like, well, how do I break into games? And I'm like, break into TV, which is way harder first. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. And was that, um, you know, I, I don't know that much about the video game side of the business. I, I've worked on one, but... Um, was that, and I think kind of early, in that early era, they were mostly hiring writers to do um, kind of dialogue or there's probably a video game term for that, but write the, write the dialogue really not work on the narrative part of it. Is that kind of why you, they were looking for TV writers? I think that just in general, games tend to have a um, feeling of being the redheaded stepchild. I think when uh, Horizon Zero Dawn, a game I worked on, won a Writers Guild Award, the head writer literally said, I know we're considered the redheaded stepchild. <laughs> like I think he literally said that on stage. Um, so they definitely look for people who have produced credits in film, TV, comics, novels. So they appreciate people who can put together a story in just about any other medium. Um, while in Hollywood, they'll be like, oh, that's nice that you do that other stuff. Prove you can do it in our medium first. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I can't really hate on that because it, it makes a lot of sense. I should say with comics, arguably comics was the hardest thing to break into. And, um, and I was like, you know, I wrote specs of comics and like, I, you know, was going to Comic-Con every year. And I was like, you know, I, I'm working as a writer. Why can't I break in here? And oddly enough, like my first comic came out of, um, you know, there were fans of uh, the, the Lizzie Bennet Diaries. There were more of the Vlogbrothers who, who uh, were executive producing it. Um, so that's kind of how, like, I wouldn't have thought like, do, a, do an Emmy winning web series and you will work in comics, but that's what happened. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. I mean, I think that's the thing is success kind of breeds success. And, um, uh, and so Scott, why don't you tell us, so you're, you started, did you start in feature films? Is that kind of the first place you? Yeah, I started in feature films. I was actually at, um, USC film school in the graduate program. And I was in the last semester, um, of the program. I'd already done, they had a thing called at that time called a 480 where you did, they paid for you to do like a 30 minute film. And, I directed that and I was sort of just finishing up my last classes. And um, this, this writer, Rich Wilkes, who wrote Airheads and had a big deal going at Disney at the time, called me up, he was a good friend at the time. And he called me up and he said, you know, there's some guys over at Fox. They got a little project, it's beneath me. Essentially it pays no money. It pays $600, you know, but if you want to just cut your teeth, you know, and write a script, you know, you know, I'll send them your number. And I actually had, at that point, had never written a script. The, the um, the project I had done at USC was somebody else's script that I had directed. I was really geared towards being a director at that point. 
Um, but you know, they gave me the treatment and I read it and it, it turned into the treatment for biodome and they paid me $600, which I split with a friend of mine, the guy who had written my 480. Cause he knew, he was a better writer than me at that point. I never written anything. Um, but I figured I knew how to tell a story pretty well. So we just dove in there and just started doing it. And I was like, great pizza money. This, you know, you know I, got, I got a little money, you know, in my, in my pocket for a few months. That's great. And then it just kept going and they kept pushing it. And eventually, um, you know, they, you know, Endeavor picked it up as a, as a spec they wanted to send around and then motion picture corp got involved in it. And then next thing I know, MGM was doing it. And so that little $600 job turned into a $90,000 payday. And then we ended up selling a bunch more stuff. And then, yeah, it's funny, a funny story because Tom Strickler was Asian. He was representing them, the producers, Mitch Peck and, and Adam Leff, who were on it. Um, and he had actually, he read the script. He said, it's funny, but he had like no interest in representing me. I asked him, I said, would you represent me? I know you're sitting around the script. He's like, oh, no, 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 no. I'm representing them. You know, I'm like, oh, okay, great. After we sold it, then we got offered another deal from Disney. Then he called me up because he heard UTA, you know, was interested in signing me at that point. And then he was like, I will cut your balls off if you don't sign with me. I was your biggest fan. You cannot <laughs> betray me. <laughs> Threatened my life. And so I, I basically said, okay, I'll sign with you, Tom. And that's the end of an endeavor. <laughs> I completely want years. someone to say that to me now. <laughs> like, I think someone got to me first. <laughs> 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 yeah, forget forget you know the whining and dining, you know, the threats are what really uh we we yeah. overdo it. Agent. Trying to castrate you. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Where's the charm? Where's, where's the yeah, where's the smooth? <laughs> That's the guy I want. Yeah. <laughs> I, I found out my um we were negotiating a deal and I found out the the attorneys for the other producers called my attorney the bitch. That was their nickname for her. And I was like, that is awesome. And I told her and she was like, that is awesome. You know, like that's the person you want repping you. So <laughs> I have to point out too, by the way, you're, you're wearing the wrong t-shirt if you were at uh, the USC uh, uh, film school. It's a long story, but essentially my dad and my mom and my, and my stepmother all, all went to UCLA. So I, I was brainwashed from a young age to root for UCLA and only UCLA and to hate SC. So it's kind of a joke in our family. I, I'm, I never went to UCLA, but I, you know, we, we had season tickets to every one of their sports, you know, for out my life. And so even though I was at SC, you know, I was basically a secret UCLA, you know, a secret Bruin, always rooting for UCLA and putting curses on the SC football team from the parking lot structure and the whole bit so it's kind of funny one day i actually stuck a usc film school sticker on my dad's on the bumper of his car and he threatened <laughs> to have the bumper removed <laughs> <laughs> yeah there's a bit of a rivalry there yeah yep. uh, I, I did 482 by the way but i was a cinematographer at that point in my oh career. very cool so, yeah yeah so um then, then my career took a whole different turn so um, yeah, it's funny i started off wanting to direct and i ended up you know making a career as a writer and publishing yeah. all this other stuff so well yeah and and so kind of what i want to talk about um, today most is like this this moving um, from different kind of genres from move you know for like Anne moving from television to video games to comic books and and Scott uh, so maybe you can tell us Scott like how you went from you're doing movies and I know you mostly um, as a comic book publisher and author a writer um, who has a little publishing thing and I see at Comic-Con every year uh, with your booth um, uh, do you want to talk about how that transition happened? Yeah, it was just, it, it, it kind of happened by chance. I mean, I was always into comics. I used to do comics when I was in high school. I used to hand draw my own little comics. That's how I started as a storyteller. And I was too dumb to get a copy machine, you know? So I would actually draw the individual comics over and over again and make <laughs> these little stories. And I'd put a little piece of gum in it and I'd try to sell it to my friends for a dollar. And I think they just felt sorry for me. So they bought them. 
So I always had this love of comics and I always collected them, but I never, I was you know, so focused on film. But there came a point when I had all these scripts laying around that people weren't buying. And I was like, I like these stories. I think they really work. And so I took one of them, <clears throat> a story called The Unwanted. And I thought it, would, it was a horror story about a bunch of kids who are stuck in a juvenile detention center and they're all like the bad kids, you know, you find out that they have a reason why they're bad, you know, they're from the streets and stuff, but they get locked in this juvenile detention center and their principal gets possessed by this demon, this ancient demon and starts hunting them, but they're the bad kids. So they start fighting back. And my pitch on it was like, you know, it's the breakfast club, meets the exorcist, you'll love it. But everybody rejected it. So I was like, all right, whatever. So I finally said, you know what, maybe I should do this as a comic. So I approached some friends of mine and, um, and I said, you know, you want to invest in this. We can be partners and I'll see if I can put it together. And, you know, and they like the idea. So I got some investors, you know, to come together and give me some money. And we, we basically just did it on our own. I hired an artist and I had no real expectation of, of doing anything that big with it. I was really just trying to create individual issues at first that I could just take to like, you know, a bigger company like Marvel or DC or Image, you know, or Top Shelf. And I thought maybe they'd like it. So I, I started to create it and I, I had created like two or three issues of it. And I, I, I got a table. You could still get a table at Comic-Con at that point, surprisingly enough, but, and it wasn't that hard. Yeah. And I got a table and I had like, that's all I had was just the table. There was nothing else but three issues of this comic. And I was just sitting there and I went up to the Marvel and DC people at the show and said, are you interested? And I got kind of one of these, ah, oh, great, whatever. We don't really care. And I was like, okay, well, shoot, you know. So I had on the table and I was trying to sell selling them for a dollar or whatever. I'll make a little bit of money to pay for the table. And this guy came up and he's, you know, and he was from Diamond, um, which is, you know, the distributor. And he said, I love this. He said, complete it as a graphic novel. Do this one cover you have, like of issue number three, this had this demon on it. It was really cool. And he said, and we will take it out. And so I had this epiphany, you know what? Just start your own company <laughs> to yeah. do your own thing instead of begging people to like your stuff see if you can just do it yourself and so we did we we we, we, we powered through and got the unwanted done as a complete graphic novel and i took it to diamond and it sold really well so i was like okay great so i was able to get other investors and to do a, and start doing other books and partnering with people and diamond was very happy because i was hitting all my benchmarks on everything so that ended up just becoming my, you know, starting my own comic book company. And then funny enough, you know, I took that same script, that same script back to the same, with the, with the, gra with the graphic novel. And I had, had Tom Strickler send the graphic novel to the same producers who rejected the script and say, oh, look what Scott's doing now. He's doing this graphic novel. And I literally got calls like, this is great. Why did you ever show me this? This is wonderful. And Tom, Tom would be like, you know, they rejected the fucking script six months ago, the fucking idiots. Ah. <laughs> so I, it was funny. I ended up optioning that several times. And, you know, so it's just funny. You know, it's just seeing it in a visual medium, all of a sudden they got it, you know, and, and saw that it would work and they were interested in it. So it's yeah, funny I, how it worked full circle. I think that happens. Sorry, I, I didn't make it you off. Oh, go, go ahead. I was kind of. Yeah, that, I, um, I think that I. I can't I don't want to say names because I don't necessarily have permission to tell this story but I also have a friend that had this sort of the same experience he was an established television writer he had written this pilot script that his agent wouldn't even send out so he did it as a graphic novel and then like a year later it's on a it's a series on a cable channel because it was a graphic novel and he and he kind of told me he's like it sold less than a thousand copies as a graphic novel and yet just the fact that it was as a graphic novel now suddenly they wanted to make it as a television show so I don't um, know if that's still the case that you could get away with just uh, a thousand. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> oh yeah, now they call you up and they, you're absolutely right, Anna. They call you up now 
And it's like, you know, they ask for the hard numbers. You know, you have to show them what you actually did. They want sales figures from Diamond or other places to prove you do it. You know, I, and it's funny, I, I had one book. It wasn't The Unwanted. It was a different book that somebody had hired me to actually write, and I owned a percentage of it. And um, I, and I gave it to, like, a producer, one of the producers on Biden, and I told him the numbers. I said, oh, yeah, this sold, like, you know, this sold, like, you know, 7,000 copies. And he's like, he's like, oh, New York Times bestseller. (laughs) (laughs) So things have changed. They really do care about how much you've actually sold it these days. (laughs) Yeah. And I am, you know, this is sort of going a little off topic, but, uh, uh, you know, I've heard in the comic book industry, a lot of times it's social media followers. Like if you're pitching a book to someone, they want to know like, well, how many people follow you on Twitter or Instagram or whatever? Like that's kind of, you know, you need to show some numbers before they'll that you can bring some audience to the to the table there um which i you know i'm not sure is great for the business but you know kind of the reality <laughs> um so and and you said you were you were interested in getting into comics for a long time and then it sounds like i don't want to say you like you fell into it but you sort of came into it in a way like you didn't go out to pitch something you sort of got asked to do it right so what was that process like transitioning well i actually had two um almost two comics go at the same time after like trying to get in for ages. And I was, uh, you know, at Comic-Con, I would walk the floor and I would, you know, I wore my writer, you know, Writer's Guild hat that said writer <laughs> on it. and I had a pin that said, you know, that had a speech bubble and you could write in whatever you want. And I wrote in hire me. I was not subtle at all. <laughs> so I did that, you know, year after year and, you know, just couldn't get any traction. Um, even sometimes when I was working on an IP that's like, I work on this IP, you're making the comic of the IP. Like, why, is, why, why can't you, you know, why is this not happening? Um, but yeah, I, I had uh, been going to this company, Zenoscope, a lot um, and just connecting with them. And uh, one of their editors, I guess, I, I think we'd heard about uh, that I was working on Lizzie Bennett. I, I don't know exactly, but he, he was a fan of um, the Vlog Brothers and their message of, you know, dare to be awesome and stuff like that. And, you know, the, the head of the company knew me because I was coming by every year. And so I think that was the, the combo that, was, that, that made that happen. And also at the same time, Lionforge was launching um, and they were looking for writers. So I, I reached out to them on LinkedIn and I, I basically inundated them with comic book samples like that I'd written, you know, I was like, I wrote, you know, cause I'd worked on a game that had uh, comic book sequences in it just to, you know, keep things on the cheap. And so I was like, look, I've done it professionally and here's my spec. And so I just like, inundated like basically exactly what you're not supposed to do you're supposed to send like one or two of your best and I was like here's everything (laughs) you will like it anyway so um then I I was uh chosen to work on one of their comics which is uh crystal cadets yes right here um so that pretty much almost happened at the same time and it was kind of two different ways but it was definitely after much uh pain and consternation. And I definitely, they do have agents for like, um, you know, illustrators and comic book artists. And I would go up to them and be like, hey, do you take writers? And, and I remember one guy, he's like, I really don't know how writers break in. <laughs> I think you just have beer with the editors or something like that. I'm like, okay, I'm not having a beer with any editor. So um, that's going to be a problem. Yeah. Well, and I, you know, I, I definitely heard in the comic book business that um, uh, you have to get an artist to draw some panels that people really don't look at scripts yeah 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 and i and i original stuff yeah and but it it doesn't have to be a lot like i i did walk the floor one time with with an artist because we were thinking about doing something 
and they were like, just give us the first five pages of, yeah. you know, your magnum opus, your 120, you know, graphic novel. And they, all they needed was the first five pages to make the decision. So I was like, oh, that's a lot better than doing the entire thing. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. I, I did that uh, too. And, and got, and, and, you know, Scott, to your, you were talking about like going to Marvel and DC. I feel like at Comic-Con Marvel and DC is not really interested in talking to you. Um, no, I don't know, maybe that's. Think you're just a fan. But, you know, they, yeah. want, they want to move you over to the merchandise. And... Right. Go to, go to the <laughs> store. Yeah. But I found that some of the smaller publishers really were, were great and willing to sit down and we even talked to, uh, I got to, you know, give a shout out to the heavy metal guys because our thing was totally wrong for them, but my artist was a big fan. And so he's like, well, I just want to go pitch it to them anyway. And they're like, yeah, your thing is totally wrong, but come sit down. And he was, he was giving my artists like pointers on his art and like, how did it, like, it was really cool. So um, yeah, I, I think if you're, if you're, you definitely go to Comic-Con, right? If you want to break into comics, that's like the number one rule, but um, so um, I'm curious, uh, well, actually, so then Scott, let, let me ask you about, because now you're doing this, um, what, is it a, we call it a web series, uh, the Nancy Hernandez and the Black Widows? Yeah, we did, we decided that we wanted to take some of our stuff to the next level, you know, um, so what we started doing is taking our graphic novels and breaking them down um, and turning them into an animated series. Um, so we, we started with Nancy Hernandez, which is our, and the Black Widows, which is our bestseller. Um, and we, we, and we, it's very popular too with, you know, I do a lot of high school presentations where I go and I talk to entire high schools all over the country about, you know, graphic novels and, you know, and, and, and reading and getting involved in manga and stuff like that. So that book was really popular with that crowd because it's about a high school haunting. So we just started taking the book and, and basically just animating it. Um, and so now we're also bringing on students as interns to help with the animation. So, um, and it's, it's going well, we really love the results of it so far. Cool. Great. Um, okay. So then the other part of this, uh, and by the way, people can find that on the website, which is, is it DiabloComics.com? Do I have that? Uh, okay. Yeah. DiabloComics. They can also find, they can search for it. If you search for it on YouTube, it'll come right up. Yeah. All the episodes. And I'll put that, uh, that link in the uh, notes, show notes. So, um, okay. So the other thing I want to discuss is, um, you know, writing for these different forms, they're, they're different, right. And, and just like, format, but also, um, I, I, you know, what you have to do as a writer changes depending on these media. So, um, so Scott, why don't you first talk about like, how did you learn to write? Well, you said you were drawing comics from your kids, so maybe by osmosis, but you were, you know, you started with the feature film script and you got into film school and then you were starting to write comics. How did, how did that process change? What's the difference? I mean, technically you should change it, right? And you should consider things like in your script, like, page turns, which is a big deal to a lot of people. Like, you know, you don't want to have like your big reveal moment happen at the bottom of a page. You want to have it when the page is turned, ideally. It, and if you can make that happen, you want to specify it in the script and think about the pacing, like how many, and sort of get into page counting a little bit to say, okay, I know I'm going to be on a page turn here, or there's going to be a splash page here. You have to start thinking that way. And you have to start thinking in pan, a little bit in panels. I don't do it as much as I should. I tend to write scripts that could work as a film or work as a comic book, right? So I don't tweak the script that much for the artists that work for me. And unfortunately, the people who work for me are, are you know, are, you know, they, they get, they, they don't yell at me too much when I just hand them a script. And it's like, dude, it's like a film script. And I'm like, I know, but you know, you know what to do. They, they usually figure it out without a lot of fuss. There are times when they'll pull me aside and say, you know, 
splash page, Scott? <laughs> you know, you know, page turners. <laughs> you, you want a panel here? What are you asking for? And I'll and I'll have to break it down. And I've tried to get better about that, like specifying the script to be a comic book script, not just a film script, because the format is almost identical, except you know, in terms of its actual formatting, it looks pretty much the same. So you know, it's easy to fall into just handing people scripts, but it, technically you should try to really think about how it's going to look how it's going to play as somebody reads through a script, you don't want to have the best moment. You know, the big reveal of the bad guy or the big dramatic moment happened right in the middle of the page. You want it to be a turn and like, oh my God, that's what happened. Oh, that's great. So you do have to think about that. That's the biggest, that's the biggest thing that I think that you, you know, that you need to do. And again, it's not rocket science. If you hand a, most artists a regular film script without any changes, they will interpret it really accurately and really well. They know what they're doing. Most of the time, you know, the artists I encounter, you know, in case you meet somebody that has no idea, but a lot of people know exactly what to do and they will illustrate it very well based on what you wrote and, and you know, on the page. So I'm not, I'm not encouraging screenwriters just to say, yeah, just take your script and hand it to them, don't make a single change, but you can do that. And, you know, I've gotten away with it. Most of the time you'll get away with it, but as you get better, or if you really want to help the artist really bust it out and make it the way you really want it, I think you really have to think about that Number, that specifically. And you also have to think about something too, although this is true of film, but I think especially true of comics, you gotta make it visual. It's gotta be in the action lines. It cannot be all this dialogue. Cause you know, you ever see a comic book where they talk for an entire yeah. Quentin Tarantino page of, of a bubble that goes on for the entire, it doesn't happen. And in, in film you could get away with a monologue like that or, you know, or stage, right? Obviously comic books, you got to keep that dialogue, really keep an eye on that dialogue and keep it smaller and just get to your points and move along so that the book moves because the visuals are telling you so much on the page already. I think my, even more than film, you really got to, at least for me, I mean, Anne might feel differently about it, but I try to keep my dialogue a little shorter in, in when I do a comic book, just because I know the reading and think about your readers, teenagers, young adults are, are a huge part of your market. Well, depending on the book you write, but that's a big part of the market I write for. They don't want to read a monologue that goes on for that long. They're reading a comic book, so they don't have to read as much. <laughs> they want it short and they want to get to the point. And, and you know, so you got to keep your dialogue snappy and quick and in and out. I think that, that's my general sort of principles that I operate on and how it's different from film. Alan Moore would like to disagree with you. I, I know. And he's a genius and he's great, you know, and Neil Gaiman too. If you can get away with it, go for it. I just, yeah, yeah. you well, know, but again, those guys have a certain cachet. Like, when you read Alan Moore, you're like, okay, I know I'm reading this genius. And if he wants to talk for a whole page and have Swamp Thing specific <laughs> about the nature of the universe, I'll read it. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like Walking Dead has a little bit of that too. Although it's, it's interesting because then it will have just pages with almost no dialogue. But there's sometimes where there's like a conversation, it's just like you just see the heads repeated, you know, and there's like the dialogue between them. It's just a whole page of just why even draw, right? Like, just yeah. read the dialogue. <laughs> yeah. just hire the letterer. There's a little bit Yeah. I was going to say, Scott, that you probably, I was going to say you have an unfair advantage writing comics because you come out of directing, but it sounds like you don't like, so I, when I write comics, I, I call every panel and, and that was largely because I never knew the artists I'd be working with. So I didn't know like how good a visual storyteller they would be because I had no idea who it was. Um, so I, I would do that. And I took a storyboarding class at the animation guild. So that was kind of helpful. Um, but I haven't really had like formal like directing training. So I find it, it can be pretty challenging because I'm like, I have to call, it's like calling every shot, right? And um, it's, it's uh, it definitely requires some forethought. 
so yeah, it's, I was going to say, it's like, is that fair? You've actually gotten trained to do it. So. <laughs> I, I think I also look out for the reason that, that you just mentioned, Dan, is that I'm actually hiring the people that I'm working with and I know them well. And I work with the same people for a long, like, like Juan Romero who does a lot of illustrations for me. I mean, I've worked with Juan for you know, 15 years. We have a shorthand with each other. If I was handing it off to strangers who I, I couldn't talk to and I didn't know, I probably would be a lot more, this panel, this, this panel, that, don't screw it up. <laughs> you know, and it's a, just a different situation because I have this dialogue going. If I turn something in and they don't get it, you know, they'll just call me or write me and say, Scott, what do you, what do you want here? You know, they'll correct me or tell me, or we can, we can really discuss it. It's not going into a blind void where I'm like, Oh God, when I get a finished comic from another company, I'm like, that's not what I wanted. <laughs> I have control of it, which gives me a big advantage. Yeah, I very, I very rarely like have ever like seen, I would not be able to pick out of the light out any of the artists. Um, and a couple of the artists I only met like on Zoom basically, like after the comic came out. So I'm always like, after this very important promotion, promotional video, um, can I talk to artists and see if he needs anything from the because <laughs> I don't have any direct contact with him. So it's always like, am I doing okay? So, you know, because I don't want to be too heavy handed. I want them to be free to do their art. But, yeah. So were you, was there, um, was the process and for you really like you wrote it and handed it off and then you got back finished pages or was there any back and there's no back and forth? I mean, so I work through the editors and that's great because the editors obviously know what they're doing. And so I, you know, send the script, we go through obviously revisions and then they send it off to the artist and then the artist sends um, pencils usually um, or thumbnails. Uh, one project I worked on got very detailed pencils. So I felt really bad about like, can we change this entire page? Um, I was like, hopefully it, uh, that's a fast artist and it's not a big deal. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so uh, yeah, then I would give feedback on that. And then, you know, then we get inks, then we get colors, then we get, you know, lettering and stuff like that. So just giving notes on all of that. Sometimes I wouldn't have the opportunity to give all those notes. Um, uh, sometimes I would, it just depended on the, on the process and I guess the deadline. Yeah, when I um, I tried to do, or I'm just still trying to do, uh, Scott, you said it, a uh, pitch for a comic book and I was working with an artist to do, a, you know, the proposal. and. I wrote out my script in panels like you're talking about, but I told I told the artist, I said, like, it's just because I don't have a good sense of what the pace on a page is. Like, I need to figure out what you can actually do on a page. And I'm like, if you don't like my layout, like, make your own layout. Like, I don't care. I'm not saying I know better than the artist how to do the layout, but I was like, I just have to do this for my own, you know, understanding of what actually I'm going to see. Yeah. I, I tend to do the same thing, Doug. I, I, I tend to default a lot to the expertise of, of the people I work with because they're very experienced. And, you know, if you understand that, I trust them, they understand the pacing of the story. And if they want to move things a little slower or they feel like a splash page is necessary or just three panels, however they feel like it's going to play the best, I have enormous amount of faith that they're going to pull it off. And I, I try not to over-direct them. I try to stick to like, I'm worried about the story. I'm worried about the overall look, you know, but, you know, and, and if they do something where I'm just like, I don't, what are you doing? I don't get this. You know, I'll tell them, but that's rare. Usually they, they're really good at figuring it out, you know, better than I probably I would if I was pointing out every single panel. But again, I'm in a different situation than you, Anne. I mean, because you have to hand it a blind, you know, to an, you know, to an editor. And then also it, it gets interpreted. It's, it's a little removed because I have that one-on-one -on -one relationship with, with the artist. Uh, you know, 
you know, we, we, we developed a shorthand and it's very easy for me to have faith that they will put the correct pace in to keep it going. And, and I've never had any complaints really, except on one book I had, and it was because the, the person who hired me to do the book was really trying to dictate it. And the pace was way off, you know, and there was nothing we could say because they, it was, they were essentially funding the book. So, but that's the only case where I had where, you know, customers came back and said, uh, you know, <laughs> what's going on with this book? It's not like your other ones. And I was like, yeah, no. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's kind of also brings up an interesting difference uh, between writing in different media is the relationship of the writer in the process changes a lot. Um, and so, Anne, I want to uh, hear some about the video game process, both like what you do as a writer, like what the requirements of the job are, and then also kind of your role in that process, which I imagine changes game to game quite a bit, but do we just talk about that a little? Yeah, I think a lot of people, the number one question I always get is, well, how do you write a game? Um, and I would say backwards and then high heels. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's, it's different every time and people don't necessarily like that answer. <laughs> uh, but yeah, if you've played a variety of games, you've, you've seen that there's like a variety of ways to tell the story. Um, some games are text only, some um, have text with some animation, some are full performance capture, some have branching, some have don't, some don't rather. And so it definitely varies on the process. And I get a lot of people in the game industry being like, well, what do you specialize in? Like, do you specialize in like story or do you like specialize in dialogue? And, you know, coming from, you know, entertainment, I was like, how would you possibly specialize that way? <laughs> like, you have to do the whole thing. Like, you just write a, you know, you come with the story, you write the script. Um, so I always thought that was pretty odd uh, that there are people who specialize, but, um, I've also done pen and paper RPGs. So, um, doing like world building, uh, you know, basically chapters of source books and stuff like that, which is very, it's basically like writing a very detailed Bible for, um, for, you know, a, a film or TV show or something like that. And, um, so it can definitely vary. Uh, sometimes I'm brought in early on a, on a project. So I'm helping coming up with a story. And sometimes you're brought in kind of late for a variety of reasons. Um, they they had, you know, they need to ship and they need more writers. Uh, like what uh, the the infamous thing is the the narrative medic. Um, you know, they've, they've made a lot of cuts and now their story makes no sense. And so they need somebody to come in and kind of like, you know, they save the, save the story. And there's this feeling that like, that's only really in games where that happens. But I remember hearing Steve D'Souza talk about how he was basically like rewriting Die Hard while they were shooting. And that's not unusual um, that like these rewrites are happening while things are going on. I heard like with Shrek, the, the original Shrek, the, um, the gingerbread scene, like that was the last thing I added. Uh, <laughs> it didn't go through like the 30,000 rewrites, you know, and so that's, that's one of the more recent additions to that script. So it's, it's really interesting. You think, oh, that's only in games where that happens, but it actually happens in every medium. It's just not well known, I guess. Well, yeah, there's the, the famous story, you know, in The Shining, you know, Kubrick was rewriting that script so often and so many times. <laughs> Jack Nicholson was in his trailer and I think somebody came in, they handed, it came to check, they gave him a script, they came back and they, you know, like like an hour later, they have you learned your lines, Jack? And, and Nicholson was like, what's the point? It'll change by noon. I mean, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I think they wrote that script like a hundred times. It, it, it depends on the, the situation, but yeah, you know, I, I think people think like, you know, that it is video games or something like that, but no, I mean, it, it just depends on the, 
on the person in charge of the product is, yeah, I've been on film sets where the, they're changing the script every friggin' day. <laughs> and, well, <you're> <laughs> and, and it has it. it. As it happens, the last uh, of these uh, podcasts, the, the last episode, uh, I had an editor and a and a writer director on talking about how they changed the story in post production. So you know, even after your shot, like, and then and it was that kind of thing. It's like, well, you cut some stuff out. Like now, how do we make this make sense? Or something didn't work on the set, and like, so now we have to figure out uh, a solution. Or just in in I think in that film particularly, there was a, a pacing issue that you know read well on the page, but then they got into the cut, and it's like, hmm, we have to rearrange because. Um, you know, because of what you discover. Or, and I remember the famous um, Silence of the Lambs when they, they had the whole thing where Jodie Foster talks about where the screaming of the lambs, like they had shot a whole flashback of her as a little girl doing that. But then they got the cut and they're like, they're like, we can't cut away from her face. Like she, her performance is so amazing. Like, so throw that flashback out, you know, because you discover things as you go. So. Well, supposedly, I mean, you know, that's why, you know, not to offend anybody, but supposedly that's why, you know, the, the new Star Wars, you know, movies were such a mess <laughs> in terms of if you really follow the threads of the story that doesn't make a lot of sense is because they finished the last one and they showed the cut to Bob Iger and he's like, I want Palpatine. And they're like, well, we never set that up. <laughs> and they had to go basically and make this ridiculous storyline at the end where Palpatine, you know, even when he got thrown over by Vader and the whole thing blew up on top of it. Somehow he escaped all that and is now reincarnated and has this whole weird thing of, I'm going to put all this fifth in you. It makes no sense, but it was because, you know, in post all of a sudden it's, no, I want this character. So let's go reshoot and try to reinvent the whole thing at the end of three movies. <laughs> yeah, development is weird. I, I had a, a director friend um, who had been, uh, animation and she'd been working on a project. She wasn't directing it, but she'd been working on a project and like we, we saw the screening and she kind of said at one point, she's like, oh, that's a setup for a joke that got cut out. And like the setup never got cut from the from the thing. And it just, because stuff changes so much, it's so hard to, to keep track. Oh yeah. So um, great. So this uh, I think has been informative. I'm sure we could talk a lot more about it, um, but uh, do we want to, why don't you tell us a little bit, Anne, I think you have, you said you have a game coming out today. Um, what is that? Yeah, so I worked on Ghost of Tsushima actually came out last year, but the director's cut comes out today. So uh, by the time you've seen it, you should have already played it. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I worked on the director's cut, which involves the expansion into Iggy Island. So I was one of the writers who worked on that. And I also have the Horizon Zero Dawn comics coming out. This is uh, Liberation number two. Uh, number one came out last month. Or no, earlier this month. So this will come out next month. That, that's a great video game, by the way. Really yeah. cool. <laughs> yeah, I, I worked on the game as well as the comic. So that was that was the the ideal scenario where it's like I'm working on the, the game and also the comic. It doesn't always work that way. And uh, and Scott, so you have the the web series is kind of your new the the um, animated uh, series is kind of your new thing. Yeah, we have some more comics coming out there in development, but yeah, Nancy Hernandez and the Black Widows, which started off as this graphic novel, you know, in the web series is our big push in comics, you know. In film, I got a couple other things going. I got a movie with Lucy Hale that's going to go into production at the end of the year that we're really excited about. So, um, yeah, we're working a lot, you know, at writing a lot of film, doing the comic book thing, and doing, I just got back from Florida. I, I did the I did the MegaCon, and 
you know, I, <laughs> my nose is actually bruised because I had my N95 mask just like on <laughs> my face, like I was in the ER with COVID patients. Because you know, Florida's crazy, but I did the show. I did four days of it. And I was going to say, really well Florida. <laughs> in the middle of Florida. And, but, you know, they masked up the entire hall and it, you know, it went well. I came, you know, I'm vaccinated too, but, you know, I came back. I'm fine, you know, and the show was great. It was very successful. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see if the comic book conventions come back because, you know, Megacon was kind of the first show that said we're just going to go for it because it's Florida. And, you know, it's right. the Wild West out there. They don't care. But they pulled off the show. I give them credit. They pulled it off. And it wasn't some giant so far, you know, not some giant crazy outbreak. They had it really under control. Um, and it was a great show for everybody. So it'll be interesting to see if all these conventions come back. It'll be wonderful because, you know, I, I do shows all over North America with, you know, with my company, Diablo Comics. And I'd love to get back to doing that. It's really fun. Well, let me actually, so if I, if I may uh, hold you on and ask you a question about uh, that, that you weren't uh, prepared for is Comic-Con. Um, well, I mean, all the cons, but I know like, and so I saw your, uh, I watched your panel on video game writing that you were on uh, for the Comic-Con at home, which by the way, I got to say is, is great um, that Comic-Con did that, right? Like that they, they, for two years now, they've basically done a just free, you can all the panels online they did their whole thing and it's free and any you know um kind of a lot more access than you can normally get to comic-con but um scott did you participate in any of that any of the comic-con at home yeah they did they had to set up a, like a whole website for your whatever your company was if you're a you know if you do comic-con you would actually basically create like a portal within the comic-con online thing so that all your products were available for people to come on and buy and people did it they came on they bought my products i mean it was not the same as being there live you know in terms of the numbers, but it was people were able to access my books and other products we sell and and, and buy them. So it worked out. And and the panel I I do I actually do the um, the the, the uh, Christianity and God and comics panel. Um, even though I'm Diablo, I don't, I don't know why they bring me into that. I guess to get the dark side of this opinion. <laughs> You're the villain on the panel. <laughs> the villain. I'm the villain on the panel. They asked me to come, but they didn't want to do the live panel this year. I said I would if they wanted to do it live. I'd make the time, but for whatever reason, they said, "Nah, we like to do this live, so we'll wait till they go back to being regular Comic Con, and then we'll do it." But yeah. it's great that they're doing it. I really admire the guys at Rob Mohic and the rest of the guys over there are really good about keeping during this pandemic about keeping comic car going and engaging with the fans yeah. and not letting it die as an experience which a lot of shows did they just shut down just forget it talk to us in two years but comic-con's been very good about reaching out to their fan base and the people who exhibit and saying listen let's keep this going you know there's a people still want this they need this stuff during the pandemic i mean maybe now more than ever they need this entertainment and they need this creative outlet so let's not let's not lose that it keeps our sanity yeah. So any uh, any good, I'll ask two questions. You can pick what you want to talk about. Any good uh, tips for someone going to Comic-Con once it comes back live and any good Comic-Con stories? I guess the tip for me, well, what I do, I've, I've gone a billion times. So every year I try to do something different than I did like the year before. And I think one of my favorite experiences was walking the floor with a development exec. And we were actually looking for a non-genre project. Um, and there is a lot, like, you know, the stereotype of, of comics is that it is very sci-fi fantasy horror and it's really true at Comic-Con. <laughs> so I think that's, that's really interesting is really getting a sense of literally how many IPs are on that floor and how many of them are genre and how it's kind of an opportunity to do non-genre stuff because of course comics Comics is a genre, is a medium, not a genre. 
Um, so there, obviously you can do murder mysteries. I mean, we've seen so many, um, you know, famous comics that are not genre at all, but like, you know, there could be more. So I think that's kind of interesting just to get a, get an idea of what's out there. And I think it's a great opportunity to do that. Um, fun stories. Well, <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I, I love, like I said, I love walking the floor. I, I've gone into this thing where getting the free promos, so like running around and trying to like grab the promos, that's kind of entertaining for me personally. <laughs> um, and of course, all the parties at night, which are uh, a challenge to get into. So that, that can be cool. So I don't know if those are great stories, but those are things that pop to mind. Yeah, I, um, I will say that one thing that I always feel like when I go to Comic-Con is that that a total the amount of properties right and 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 Scott maybe you have something to say about this being as someone who has a booth and tries to sell product like it your mind you I just sort of glaze over your mind gets numb to just like another superhero on a cover you know and a, like a guy with a cape on a cover all strong like there's just so much of it and, and it just kind of drives home yeah you got to find some way to to stand out and not be what everybody else is because because when you see it all in one place like that it is staggering how much content there is uh scott do you have a comment yeah I, 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 you know for just advice at comic-con one of the for the everything that ann's saying is, is is spot on is that it's really easy to fall into the typical superhero thing but i think that when people ask me about comic-con i always say spend your time in artist alley and small press because you could go to dc and marvel and what are you going to see there? I mean, you might see the, you know, Thor's throne room or they have those displays and it's really easy to get sucked into that. And I'm going to spend 10 hours here. So, you know, or the Hasbro booth so I could maybe get this ticket for like this, you know, for some product they're selling. But to me, really what the great thing of Comic-Con is, is, is try to go back to its roots. The most creative part of Comic-Con is not all that. That's just people hyping big IPs that you're going to see anyway. It's not hard to see that you'll, you'll get fed that, you know, with a fire hose, <laughs> just if you're online ever. Go to Small Press and go to Artist Alley because that's where you're going to see the real creativity. People who are taking chances and risks and doing things that are different, like you said, non-genre. Non and you're going to discover gems there that you don't normally find because they don't have this giant machine of marketing behind them to let you know. It's someone who's come up with a cool little comic and maybe personal and maybe, you know, something that's just unique. It, or it's even a unique artistic product. It doesn't have to be a book. It could be something that's created, you know, and you will find it there. And I think that's where you should spend your time. And that's where Comic-Con really started, which was that kind of stuff. And it's still there and take advantage of it. Don't just go to the big stuff that everybody's running to like a herd. Go to those smaller areas and you'll really find some great stuff that you take home and cherish. Um, and you'll discover artists that are you know, that you can actually talk to. I mean, how many times do you go to DC? Are you really going to talk to that artist? They're going to be on a panel and you're going to be at the back of Hall H going, <laughs> you know, but if you go to Artist Alley, you can talk to the artist who you like, you know, every year and they'll engage with you. And I think that's a very valuable experience. Um, my, one, my one funny story about Comic-Con, it relates to how I got on that Christian, you know, <laughs> Christian or Christianity and arts panel. One of the first years I was there at Diablo Comics, for whatever reason, they stuck me next to the Christian Comic Art Society booth. And they actually talked to those guys ahead of time. I found out later, they're like, is it okay if we put you next to Diablo Comics? Is that going to offend you? And they were like, no, I guess it's okay. But it turned out the guy running the booth, Ralph Miley, <laughs> is like the sweetest guy on the history of the planet. But he's a little mischievous. And the first year I was next to him, he was doing this crap where people were walking by the booth, like just doing their thing. 
And he's like shooting them with rubber bands and paper clips. And when they would turn around and be all like, aggro, what's going on? He'd be like, Diablo Comics right there. What do you think of that? <laughs> I kept getting people yelling at me. I was like, will you stop it? <laughs> what do you think I'm guilty because I'm the devil? Will you knock it off? <laughs> and then we became great friends. And then he eventually asked me to start doing his panel with him. So <laughs> that's one of my favorite stories from Comic-Con. <laughs> it just ended up being an odd friendship because we were stuck next to each other. But we're great friends to this day. Cool. Great. Well, um, thank you guys so much for doing this. And uh, hopefully see you at conventions and things post pandemic. For sure. And thank all of you for joining us. Um, remember the fourth edition of the Hollywood Pitching Bible, a book I co-wrote with producer Canaguado, is now available from Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and anywhere else you buy books. Finally, if you like what you heard, please subscribe by clicking the button to the lower right. I hope you'll join us next month for more schmoozing about writing.